So these people in Hebrews chapter, in, in the book of Hebrews, to whom the author was writing, had gone through a great ordeal of sufferings. They had endured the confiscation of their property. Uh, they had been persecuted and hounded and chased uh, all over the land. And, um, and, and the author to Hebrews is writing as, and I call this a sermonic letter. It's really a letter of encouragement and warning. And there are the, the, the five great passages of warning throughout this letter um, I believe it's really the key to understanding this letter as he's flowing through. And, and each warning increases in its intensity until you get to the last warning. The first warning is uh, a, a warning not to drift from the, the knowledge of the, of the gospel and the truths of our salvation. And then at the end, he talks and gives this warning uh, concerning being apostates or departing from the truth. And each warning in between is increasing in its intensity. Because he knew, he understood this reality. He understood that these people were beginning to question and doubt the, 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 the purpose of their faith and, and whether this was something worth being committed to and suffering for. And they were questioning these things. And of course, many of these people that he's writing to would have come out of, if not most of them, would have come out of a Jewish background, um, understanding Old Testament uh, walking according to the law, and in many ways, uh, they were turning back to that, and they were questioning this business of following Christ. And this is not unusual, is it? Suffering is not unusual. It's difficult, but it's, it's there in life. And so the author's writing to encourage them, and as he gets to Hebrews chapter 11, he is really driving home, as we shared last night, the certainty of our faith. And we defined this certain faith as a faith that is rightly defined in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. It's, it's a faith that remembers God's past works. It's a faith that lives in God's moral works. And it's a faith that lives. This is a faith that we need to adopt. And I thought it might be helpful this is not in my notes, but just by way of you getting to know me a little better, I'm uh, pleased for that, and I, I'm pleased to get to know you as well. But <clears throat> when the Lord called me into ministry, I was a, a, still a pretty self-sufficient guy, and I prided myself in the ability to uh, work with my hands and to take care of myself. And one of the things that I wanted to, to do as a young Christian going into full-time ministry was to be a tent maker. I didn't see myself as going into ministry and taking up some position somewhere or a slot somewhere that someone had organized, and there was a pay payment for that. And um, we, we were pretty newly married. We had one little child, and, and so there was a lot of pride. The Lord had to smash a lot of pride out of me, and, and there's still a truckload in there that he's dealing with from time to time for sure, but... I got sick. I was self-employed. I was landscape gardening and uh, putting, building fences in the city of Christchurch. I was developing land at the time, <clears throat> and I had bills I had to pay every month. There was no way around them. And I got really sick. I got some kind of virus long before COVID came along. And um, I'm lying in bed. I'm, I'm, I'm never sick. I, I didn't know what sickness was. And seven days into the sickness, I was so weak, I couldn't get out of bed. And so I'm just lying there, and I'm thinking, this is not good. I've got bills to pay, I've got work to do, and uh, I, I was just hoping the next day I'd get better. It never happened. By the third week of the sickness, I'm now facing the end of the month. I know by the Coming up, the month is coming up to the 20th. I know I've got to pay $1,800. I've got to find $1,800 just to stay afloat. And so I'm crying out to God. I decided, you know, um, I need to put my, side, my pride aside and go to the doctor. <laughs> I made my way to the doctor. I was starting to feel a little bit better. I got to the doctor. She said, well, you've had a specific virus. We didn't really know a lot about this virus, but some people have been paralyzed by this virus, some people have been made deaf by this virus, and some people have died with this virus. And she said, it looks like you're on the up and up, and there's really nothing I can do for you. Go home and rest. I went home. I was had enough strength to, to say to my wife, we need to go to church on Sunday. Went to church, and that morning there was a, an announcement that a dear friend of ours who had worked with us in youth ministry in that church, had her husband had passed away. They'd only been married nine months. And she was in a, a part of New Zealand that she knew no one. 
And uh, we were deeply concerned for her and just for her well-being. And I said to Barb, my wife, on the way home, I said, I would love to, for us to be able to go to, to be with her in this time of mourning and grief. And uh, I said, but it was just with no way we can do it. We just don't have the finances. And um, I was starting to feel better. And this was Sunday. And I was thinking, great, we're going to be back at work on Monday. We get home and we, we knelt down and we prayed for this dear lady and uh, committed her to the Lord and, um, and, and prayed and said, Lord, if there's any way that we can be with, with her and encourage her through this time and be a support to her, we'd love to do that. And the phone rang and there was a, uh, a guy who had worked with me in youth ministry uh, was calling and he said, Andy, he said, um, are you and Barbie thinking of going up to Tassie Papuni's funeral? And I said, uh, we'd love to, but it's just financially, there's no way we can do that right now. And I uh, haven't been well, I've been off work for uh, a good few weeks. And, and he said, well, if, if someone would provide the finances, could you go? And I said, yeah, absolutely, we could go. And uh, he said, well, I'm glad for that because I'm standing at your front door and I have a ticket for you and your wife and I have hotel fears covered and a car rented for you. And he said, we want you, my wife and I want you to go as our ambassadors because we cannot go. And so I opened the door, we chatted, we prayed, um, and I came inside and I thought, hang on a minute, that's, I, I need to earn $1,800 before the 20th. I've got about a week and a half to do that, and here I am holding in my hands a, a pretty much equivalent value, and God's going to send me to the other end of the country. This is kind of odd. I'd never experienced anything like this. We went to the funeral, we came home um, after a few days, and uh, we, uh, we got up in the morning and we prayed, and, and I was still really quite weak, but I knew I needed to get out there, and we prayed that the Lord would help us find the resources for the next, uh, in the next little while before this 18th, the 20th came around. And um, as we were praying, the phone rang, and um, I, I picked up the phone, and it was a, a lass on the other end, and she said, is this Till and Tidy? That was the name of my business. And I said, yes. And she said, like, I, I, could you come and give me a quote? I need to build a fence and uh, I just need a quote. And so I said, sure. She said, could you come today? I said, absolutely. So I went around there and I did a quote. And um, as I'm leaving, she said, hang on a minute. She disappears and comes back out. She said, here's a, a check for the amount you've quoted me. She said, you're not the cheapest. You're not the most expensive, but I like you and I want you to have this money now because if you don't take this money now, I'm a single mother and I'm gonna spend it and you won't have it. I told her I couldn't do it for a few weeks. And I said, whatever you do, never do that. Never ever give people money before the job is done. And she said, no, I, I insist, I absolutely insist. So um, against all good judgment, I took that money, went home and I handed it to my wife and I said, here's $750. I don't know what God's doing, but no one's ever paid me in advance of a job that I've quoted. As we got down and thanked God for that $750, the phone rang again. I'm not lying. You can call my wife. The phone rang again, and there was a couple up the hill behind us. Um, I was good friends with their son. I knew of them. I didn't know them super well. Um, and they said, Andy, uh, my husband and I, we're going away for six weeks, and we'd like someone to care for our property while we're away, just to make sure that the watering system's going and the cat's fed, and um, would you be prepared to do that? And I said, absolutely. I was just on my way to work. I had work up the hill that I was going to later on that day, and, um, and she, said, I, I, she said, could you come up today sometime? I said, sure, I can come right now. So I went up there, and uh, it was all automated. Even the cat feed was automated, and I'm thinking, why does she need me to drop in and check on the property, you know, and make sure things are going? And as I'm walking out the door, she said, hang on a minute, and she reaches inside a room and pulls out an envelope about this thick and hands it to me. And she, I said, what's that? She said, oh, that's just a, a gift. I said, well, I don't need pay for this. I do this for nothing. I, you know, it's not a problem. I drive past it every day, and she said, no, she said, we, we understand that's not, this is not um, payment, this is a gift. My husband and I this morning were praying for you and Barbie, and uh, the Lord laid it on our hearts that, that, to give this, this money that we had set aside. And so I didn't even count it. I took it home, gave it to my wife, and, um, and she counted it, and it was another $650. So we got on our knees again, and we prayed again. And I'm not kidding, the phone rang again. 
I picked it up and there was a guy at the other end and he said, hey, I've seen your ad in the newspaper. I never advertised in the newspaper. Go figure this one. He said, I've just built a house. I want someone to do the landscaping for the home. Is this something that you could do? And I said, well, I've never done a full landscaping. He said, how hard can it be? I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, how hard can it be? He said, it can't be that hard. He said, I've got the plans here. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You just put the pieces together. He said, why don't you come on up and have a look at it? Okay. So I drive up the hill to this brand new property, and this guy comes out, introduces himself, and uh, go in his home and sit down at the table, and he opens these plans up. And it was a lady, actually, the lady who developed these plans was a lady I knew from my college days who had gone through a horticultural background and training, and uh, here she was now developing and designing um, properties for people. And I looked at it, and I said, yeah, I could do that, I guess. I, I, it's not something I've done before, but I said, look, I, I don't have all the equipment needed. I have to hire it. Would you be prepared to pay the hire? He said, oh, absolutely. You just hire it. I'll pay for it. And I said, look, what, I, what I'll do is I'll charge you hourly, and if you don't like my work, then um, in seven days you can just you know, pay me out, and, and I'll go my way, and everything will be good, you know? And he said, well, what do you charge per hour? And I told him, and he started laughing. He laughed at me, and I thought, oh, no, because I'd increased what I normally charge because I was looking around thinking, this guy man, this guy can pay an awful lot. And uh, so I increased my, my hourly rate for that job because I knew there would be mitigating factors as well. And, and he said, Andy, he said, you will never make a living and be successful in business charging that hourly rate. He said, I'm going to double that. I'm like, are you kidding me? In my mind, I'm thinking... Who does that? If some guy comes and he says he's going to do the work for $15 an hour, do you double it? Has anyone here ever done that? No. And so the story continued. And by the 20th, we had the money to pay all the, cover all our debts, all our responsibilities for that month. And I realized what God was doing. What God was teaching me in that moment was, Andy, I don't need your skills. I don't even need you. I don't need you to be the guy that's going to provide for yourself. I can provide for you. I can provide for you. Little did I know that that would be tested for 20 years. And over 20 years... I watched God provide for me and my wife and my three children, never had a consistent income. Before this all began, I was always anxious about money. I was always concerned about money. But after this provision and just the awareness, the absolute awareness that God had put that together, I knew I just didn't need to care about money in that sense. Now, that doesn't mean I wasn't a good steward. It doesn't mean I'm not a hard worker. It doesn't mean that I, I'm not careful with what I receive. But I didn't, I, I didn't need to care. I didn't need to be anxious. I didn't need to have an ungodly concern about finances. And God's proven that in my life. 48 years in Christian as a Christian, and the Lord has taken care of me, my wife, my three kids, and now their, their wives and their husbands and the grandchildren. And I've watched God provide for us all. It's a little story to help you understand where I'm coming from. So when I'm talking about faith and I'm talking about difficulties in the Christian life, we weren't without those. Even knowing God would provide, I remember bowing my head and thanking God for the food he was about to provide because the only food we had on that table was, a, was a, a small block of butter and some bread. And to hear a knock on the door and to go to the door and open the door and my brother, my brother in the flesh was standing there with two bags of groceries. A brother, by the way, who had never visited my home in the four years I owned it. It was always me visiting him. And he's standing there and he said, I don't know why I'm here, but um, 
we had someone bring a whole lot of groceries and vegetables and stuff to work today. And at the end of the day, there was still a whole bunch left over. I put it into some bags and I was driving home and I thought of you and your wife. I thought of you and Barbie. And I thought maybe you could do with this. So I turned around and came here. Tears were flowing. He had no idea. He had absolutely no idea that he had just been used of the Lord in that moment to provide for us for that meal. And boy, we had a good meal that night. All of us face difficult situations in life, but we're called to have the certainty of faith. Maybe it's financial for you. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's physical. Maybe we've been in that situation where we've wished to have the power to change the circumstances so that our lives would be just a little bit better, a little more comfortable. One religious paganist of our day says that uh, we have this power. And it's expressed in the two words, he says, I am. He says that if you were to change your life and define your destinies, then you simply need to say, I am blessed. I am healthy. I am strong. I am successful. I am wonderful. I am amazing. I'm valuable. And this, he says, will determine the kind of life you will live. These two words, I am, give you the power to change your life. But do they? Do they really? Well, the answer is, of course not. The power is not in some words. This kind of talk is often misunderstood by what we call or what the Bible calls faith. This has nothing to do with biblical faith. Modern pagan religionists of our day are, are identified by their man-centeredness, promising your best life now and deceiving thousands by throwing the name of Jesus in the midst of their teachings to deceive them into thinking they have found the truth when in fact they have been beguiled by doctrines of demons. I spent quite a bit of time in my ministry life in Africa and Uganda, and it's a curse. The health, wealth, prosperity, gospel is a curse. In the 70s, it came to New Zealand. It wrecked the church. It raped the church of resources. These people say things like, anyone can create by faith the, and words, the dream he desires, health, wealth, happiness, and success. One of these men wrote, and I quote, if you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, then nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. Another writes, and I quote, all of us are born for earthly greatness and we're born to win. I always, when I hear that, I always go, win what? Or, or God wants you to live in abundance. Really? You are, you are born to be a champion, they say. And he goes on to say, get your thinking positive and he will bring your desires to pass. God regards you, he says, as strong, courageous, and a successful person. You're on your way to a new level of glory. Well, how do you get there? Well, these men say you get there by believing, visualizing, and speaking that reality out loud. They say words release your power. Words give life to your dreams. Well, sadly, this kind of teaching are the tools that the enemy uses. Now, the reason I've told you my story is because I, I want you to know that I'm not the opposite of that in the sense of I, that I don't believe God provides. He does. The sun rose this morning. Who do you think has control of that? It rained yesterday. Who do you think has control of that? You know, some of us live our lives based on the resources we have, <coughs> in our banks. That's not a good way to live. We have much greater resources than that. But on the other hand, we're not saying, are we, that when you follow Christ, that life is going to be sweet. It's going to be a bed of roses. It's going to be a walk in the park. It's not. This is a life 
of persecution and suffering. And that's what these people in Hebrews were going through. In fact, the religious paganist preaches a gospel that is opposite and a life uh, within that gospel for, for the Christian that is the opposite of what we discover in Hebrews. Hebrews 10 through 12. And instead of thinking that faith is some sort of mystical power that leads to health, wealth, and success, we discover that by faith, that is by believing in the promises of God, the believers of Hebrews were accepting joyfully the seizure of their property. And they, they, they were knowing based upon the promises of God that they had for themselves a better possession, a lasting one. In other words, they weren't looking for health, wealth, and prosperity in this world. They were embracing the blessings that come through Christ and the heavenly glories that were now with theirs because they were now ears and joint ears with Him. In other words, by faith, they were being called to look to God whose plan was to rescue them out of this sin-cursed world by breaking the bonds of the evil one and setting those who were slaves to sin and Satan free to serve the living God. I'm talking about saving faith. I'm talking about a faith that delivers. So we've talked about a faith that is certain, but this is this morning a call to consider a faith that delivers. The theme of salvation from sin and this world has sounded all the way throughout this sermonic letter. Listen carefully to some of the, the texts in this letter. Hebrews 2, 3 says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Hebrews 5.9, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. <coughs> So faith then is, the, is a heart assurance, it's a relational assurance, and it's a salvation issue. It's a heart issue, a relational issue, and a salvation issue. And the state of our daily lives as men of God is directly proportional to the faith we exercise. That's true. But it doesn't cut a pathway for escaping difficulty, challenges, trials, and suffering. This is what we're actually called to. And if you're going to survive difficult times, you better have a faith that's rooted in the promises of an eternal God. You better understand faith's deliverance. So take your Bibles. Let's read some scripture here together. And I'm going to focus this morning in on verse 11 of Hebrews, uh, verse 7, sorry, of Hebrews 11. But let's read for just sake of context here uh, from verse 1, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God and that what is seen was made out of was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith that though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, verse 5, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to, to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God after things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is 
in accordance to faith or in according to faith. Let's pray. Father, as we open uh, this text this morning, we pray, God, that you would just help us understand it, help us understand its meaning, and Father, the implications of that to our lives, that we might be men of faith, and that our faith might be a certain faith, but also a delivering faith. Pray for your blessing now and this time in Jesus' name. Amen. By using the, the literary device of repetition, repeating this word by faith, by faith throughout this chapter, this author is <clears throat> revealing multiple biblical examples in order to give the, the reader here an understanding of what true faith is. These examples provide strong support for his contention that God's people must be a people of faith even in the face of disheartening times. There are some stunning portraits here, aren't there, in this hall of faith. There's just some just stunning portraits. As you consider these men and women who demonstrated faith and a persevering faith and a certain faith, in their lives and the decisions they made. In verse four, Abel has a faith that produced acceptable worship to God and gained him a right standing before God. And even though he met an untimely death, his life, the author says, still speaks today by faith. In verse five, Enoch is seen as a man whose faith provoked God's pleasure. We see that his life is characterized by walking with God, by pleasing God, by believing that God is as he said he is and as he's revealed himself to be and by seeking the reward of God in his life. And both of these portraits are stunning. But I think the next one, just as I was preparing for this weekend, leapt out at me. That faith in Noah, by faith Noah being warned of God about things not yet seen and reverence prepared an ark. Now Noah's faith delivers him. It delivers him and it delivers his family from impending judgment. And the background of this statement about Noah is found all the way back in Genesis 5 through 9. Lamech was 182 years old when he became the father of Noah. Noah means the one who gives us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands. Lamech lived as Noah's father to the ripe old age of 777 years. Your dad's 103? 101. 101. I knew a 103-year-old. Yeah. 777. He's got a long way to go, right? Noah was 500 years old when he fathered his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis 6, we discover that the world Noah was living in was so depraved and so evil that, that there was every thought and every intention of every human being on the planet was only evil continually. Now, you've probably met people, I have, who will tell you that they can't believe in a God who would wipe out every human being on the planet because they don't see that as good. My comment to those people is, oh, you need that God. Why? Well, because he's just. This is justice. This is justice. I, I, I don't want to follow a God who's not just to you. I know that justly and righteously I deserve to spend eternity in hell. But I also know justly and righteously through faith in Jesus Christ, I get to spend eternity in heaven with God. And I get to enjoy the blessings of that even right now. Not all of them. But to walk my day today, or to walk this, this next week for you men, it's not about just walking in time, is it? We now have eyes to see that which the world does not see. We now have a mind to understand that which the world does not understand. We look through a different lens at life because of faith. And so all these people were sinning and thinking and intending evil continually. And God was grieved. In Genesis 6, 6-9 it says, The Lord was sorry He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah... 
found favor in the eyes of God. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Men, I don't care how dark it gets morally, spiritually in America. That's not an excuse for us as the church to snuff the light out, is it? That's not enough for us to say, oh, well, it's all over. Noah walked with God in a culture that continually was evil. And he walked and he knew his Lord and he was declared as a righteous man. That's the responsibility. That's the call. That's the outworking of God's saving grace in our lives. He doesn't just give us the righteousness of Christ. He calls us to experience and walk in that righteousness. Genesis 6.13, it says, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth, with, uh, destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he gives him the materials, the structure, the measurements, and all of that he was to use. And then he declares in verse 17, Behold, I am... I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And he gives them instructions concerning what and who he is to bring on board with him. And, and then he states in verse 22, this Noah did. Noah obeyed him. This Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And you know the rest of the account. Uh, the world was completely flooded. Noah and his family were delivered from the flood and the ark. The entire process lasted a year and 10 days from beginning to end. And at this point, God established with Noah a covenant and with all living flesh that he would never again flood the entire earth. And he placed a rainbow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. And Noah got to live to 950 years before he died. Now, I don't need to go into describing the ark. If you want to go see what it looks like, go to Kentucky and you'll find one there. Answers in Genesis, I think, has done a great job in that. But the author of Hebrews points to four realities of faith's deliverance in the life of Noah. I want you to see these. Just walk with me with these. I know you know this story. It's a, it's a Sunday school story. You got it all on board. But look at these realities of faith's deliverance in the life of Noah. And my purpose here is just to encourage you men to walk by faith. The, the first reality of, of Noah's understanding of faith's deliverance is he obeyed God's revelation. Noah was warned by God about things not yet seen. And true faith, saving faith, heeds and obeys God's word, especially when there's a warning. So when you're reading scripture and you come across a warning, it's interesting that, um, John, you chose to read Ephesians 6. Stand firm, therefore. Put on the armor of God. Why? We're in a battle. This is not, Christianity is not, uh, we're in a foreign land. We're not just cruising through life. We're in a battle. We are to every day put on the full armor of God in order to stand firm. And dear friend, if you don't put on that armor, if you don't put on Christ's truth, Christ's righteousness and Christ's peace every day of your life, then sooner or later, the enemy will come in a way that will wash you away. It's not a game. I used to take teams and we'd go on beach missions, and some of these kids were just out of diapers, I think, but they were pretty young, some of them in high school, and they'd come on these teams, and you know, there's all kinds of reasons why teenagers go on teams. You don't need to go into that, but most of them are wrong. And, uh, and so some of these kids would come, and they just want to have a good time and get to meet some boy or some girl, and, and that was their motivation. And the first night we would gather together, I would explain that if that's their motivation, I'm willing to drive them home right now. Why? Because what we were about to do was to walk into Satan's territory, to preach the gospel, which is the power of God under salvation, and to deliver the captives from his kingdom. And he's a king. 
and he's an angry king. He's wrathful. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's not concerned in devouring his own people. They're already his. Every one of us is born into this world as a child of the devil. We are sons of the evil one, born of the seed of Adam. And in the midst of that, God comes and he brings this light and he, he sheds abroad his light in our hearts and he redeems us and he calls us to be his children and he saves us and he sanctifies us and he reconciles us into this relationship of sonship. And we call him our father. And believe me, Satan doesn't like that at all. There's a warning. God warns Noah about things not yet seen. There's a warning. What's the warning about? It's about a flood. It's about judgment. It's coming. Judgment is coming. And you need Noah to build an ark. God is about to end the existence of all flesh on the earth. He's about, and, and so that Noah has been called here to build an ark of gopher wood, 510 feet long, 85 feet high, 51 feet wide. <clears throat> That's approximately, by the way, one and a half football fields long, wider than this building. And faith doesn't question God's word. When God says something's going to happen and we need to act and walk accordingly in light of that warning, then we need to do it, even if it seems too difficult. When I was lying sick in that bed, I remember saying, God, I can't do this. This is too hard. I could not see humanly any possibility of how to meet my financial needs. And God granted me a gift that, through that process to understand that, yes, there's saving faith, but there's also sanctifying faith. Now think with me here. Noah was about to believe what he had never seen. He had never seen the outpouring of God's wrath in this manner. Don't miss this. So often we talk about Noah and we talk about and we focus on the ark and the animals, but surely the point, the central point, the point that's up front in all of this story is that God's wrathful judgment against those who were created is coming and, and these people who are created in His image are about to experience what it means that God is a just and holy and righteous God. And we have a record of this judgment Every nation in the world, every nation group people of this world have a flood story. Did you know that? Even the Maori people. New Zealand apparently was fished up out of the ocean by some past ancestor called Maui. Doesn't matter where you go, you find this flood story. And if you're a geologist, doesn't matter where you go, you see the flood story. It's everywhere. We have a record of this judgment and yet, Still, we don't believe. Still, we don't walk by faith so often. We walk by sight. Noah has never seen a deluge of rain. He doesn't even know what that is. He's never understood anything like a, a cataclysmic breaking up of the fountains of the deep, spewing out water to cover every piece of land on the earth. This catastrophic global flood had never been seen before. Above this, he was being asked to take on a task that I'm sure he thought was humanly impossible. Ever tried to catch two of every kind of animal? <laughs> Ever thought of building a massive wooden structure? By the way, I'm told, I think this is right, that, that uh, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky is the largest wooden man-made wooden building in America. Even today, it's huge. Beyond all of this, he was to build this boat some 100 miles away from the ocean and build it of such a size to house every kind of animal. Just, I, I just put myself in his shoes and think, oh, what? 
How's this ever going to be possible? He would have absolutely no support. No one was being asked to stand and to do something that an invisible God told him to do. And even though this God's glory was evident in creation, no one was to act and follow this God regardless of the darkness and the evil of every man around him. He was alone in this mission. And yet in all of this, Noah obeyed, Noah persevered, and Noah put one foot of faith in front of the other, and he continued for hundreds of years to believe God. God's word for Noah was absolutely sufficient, and it should be sufficient for you and me. Think of how much more revelation we have now than Noah had of God's saving purposes. His faith, Noah's faith was firmly placed in the revelation of God and he lived to please him and not please men. And how much more, how much more with all of the revelation we have, with all of the knowledge we have, of the knowledge of Christ coming into the world, dying on that cross, being buried, being raised from the dead, ascending back to his Father's right, how much more should we obey our Lord? And yet, what I see in my own life and other men's lives is that so often we are not walking by faith, but by fear. Fear of keeping our job or losing our job. Fear that something terrible might happen to our family. Fear of getting some bad news from our doctor. That's why most men don't go to doctors. Fear of failure. Fear that, well, I might be rejected if I open my mouth and share Christ with somebody. <laughs> you will be, just get over it, you know. All kinds of fears fill men's lives. Fear that my wife won't love me if I act a certain way. If I call her to follow me as I follow Christ, she might, she might not want me anymore. Maybe she won't. But what, what are we going to do? Are we going to live our lives in fear? Or are we going to be like Noah, who faced, placed his faith firmly in God's revelation and lived to please him and not man? Because you know, when we fear, what we are doing in the process of being worshipers at that point is now we're worshiping something that's less than God, as though it's greater. The, worth, the worthiness of God should capture every essence, every part and every molecule of the essence of your being. There should be no room as a believer, as a Christian, for the worship of other idols. And yet, I know we're human and we battle with this. Faith, by faith, Noah obeyed God's revelation. We need to too. Secondly, by faith, Noah led his wife and family to salvation. In reverence, he prepared an ark, it says, for the salvation of his household. True faith is expressed here in, in a heart of devotion and reverence to God. And this leads to obedience. The word reverence speaks to a genuine spiritual devotion that sees God and treats God and His Word with great respect and awe. Genesis 6, 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and like his great-great-grandfather Enoch, he too walked with God. And this is the way our life, we're to live our lives. And such living is absolutely essential for the salvation of our families. If you're here this morning and you have children, you need to turn your heart to your children. You need to love your children. Your ch children need to know that you are 100% committed 
to working and walking and loving and learning life with them as you reveal to them the greatness of the God you worship. How will our kids ever worship God if the God you worship is so small that you won't confront sin in your own life? That you won't humble yourself and seek forgiveness when you sin? that you won't show them the way forward. And I'm not just talking about taking your kids to church, to Sunday school where you hand them off to someone else. I'm talking about you discipling your children. I'm talking about you walking down the pathway of life and opening the scriptures and opening truth to them. Where you, where, where, and when, when you're going along the way, when you're, you're walking in the way, when you're working, when you're coming home, when you're at home, just everywhere you go talking about truth and the God of truth. We want our children to know the Lord. How are they gonna get to know Him unless they see Him in you? That's our responsibility. We are to bring up, present tense, continuously bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We live our lives like this. Our kids kids should never doubt who our God is. Never and it shouldn't be sports. I mean, think about it. Just be a kid for a little bit. You watch your dad, he goes to church for an hour and a half, comes home and watches three hours of sports. Which one's more important to him? Or you have a dad who you never see because he's working 60, 70 plus hours a week. You never see him. So who's more important, the job or the parenting? His relationship with you. Where, where does his relationship lie? Where, you know, where, does, where does he stand in that process? We need to work through these things. We need to understand, just as Noah did, that what he was doing was preparing a, an ark for the salvation of his wife and his family. It's so essential to have a life like this. If you're to influence your children to the way of salvation, we need to walk in that way and not just give lip service. Hey, I'm a Christian. Hey, we go to church. That's lip service. What does that mean? Do you even have a mission statement as a dad for your family? I remember being challenged to do this as a young man and I'm so thankful for this. I wrote a mission statement. I sat down and I thought, what, what would it be for my life, firstly, what kind of mission would God call me to? And it was pretty clearly defined, actually. And still it is in my life. My, my, my key verses are Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And I build a mission statement around that. And I said, you know what, if I have a mission for my own life, should I not have a mission for my family's life? So I created this thing called the Woodfield Mission Statement. And I, I sat down with the family and we worked through the scriptures and we said, look, we, we, we all know where to glorify God, right? That's easy. So let's put that one up the top. But let's talk about what that looks like. And the Woodfield family, to glorify God means, point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Man, that saved me a lot of grief. When my children came to me and said, Dad, I don't like what's going on right now in my life. Well, son, nor do I. But God hasn't called me to like everything. He's called me to love Him and to obey Him. And our mission statement as a Woodfield family is, even though this is hard and this is difficult, we're gonna trust God and we're gonna look to one who's sovereignly over our lives and accept the good and the bad. And we're gonna worship Him because it's blessed. God who's the giver is blessed, but He can also take away and He's still blessed. He's still good. God never changes. So I, I, we walked with that as, as a family. And, and I know that truth and I know that reality had a huge impact on my kids. I mean, they're, they're as big a rebels as I was as a young man. I, I mean, the fact that, that God saved me is just, a, it's a miracle. <laughs> and the fact that God saved any of my kids is also a miracle. But I've got, a, I've got a part to play in that. God's providence, God's sovereign providence in my family's life flows through me as a father, through my wife as a mother. And we need to be responsible. 
For me, it meant pointing my family to Christ, who's the only one that can provide protection and deliverance from God's wrath to come. We've been warned. I'm warning you men this morning. There's a day of judgment coming. I've read the last book in the Bible. And for those who don't know Jesus Christ, for those who've rejected him, there are serious, eternal, serious consequences. Make time for your kids. It's not your time anyway. God's granted you the same amount of time he's granted everyone else. Make sure your children are a priority. Make sure that you are building an ark, as it were, for the deliverance of your wife and your family. What is that ark for us? Well, it's not made of gopher wood. This ark is a precursor, if you like, to the saving work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make peace, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You might not know it. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you are at war with God and God is at war with you. And you better make terms of peace real quick. And the way the Bible says to do that is through faith. We are justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. So like the ark, Jesus is the only place of safety provided by God to escape this coming wrath. And Paul writing to the Christians in Colossae says this, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. Wow. Right there in the New Testament. The wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. You know, when my son was walking in rebellion to me, I remember sitting him down in my living room. One day, we had a little area in the front of our living room. I sat down. I said, son, I want you to know I love you. And I want you to know that I'm not unaware that I've done something to wound your heart. I'm just unaware of what that is. And I'm not leaving this room until you know the love I have for you. I'm not leaving this room until you know that I am committed to your salvation, to your sanctification, to your spiritual well-being. I'm not leaving this room until we have a heart-to-heart talk and I find out what's going on. Man, that took over an hour. At the end of that hour, the floodgates of his heart were opened and he wept. He was a 20-year-old and he wept like a baby. I'm not sharing that story because I got it right. I'm sharing that story because I should have done that years before. But my pride wouldn't let me. This is faith's deliverance. We need to walk in this kind of faith. Thirdly, by faith Noah rebuked the world. I like this one. (laughs) This is good. This was one I got when I was younger. He rebuked the world, it says, by which he condemned the world. He built it, and building the ark, he bore witness to the unseen God and his word, and he constituted, this constituted a stark prophetic rebuke to the godless generation that was around him. You say, well, what's that got to do with me today? I don't know. God hasn't called me to. Yes, he has. He's called you to build something that condemns the world. I was a young father. I had three children. Things were not good. We were sending our kids to school, and it was, it was bad. It was really bad, man. And I was watching my kids just be destroyed. And I went in. I sat in classes. And finally, I went to the principal, and I said, look, I, I, I got to take my kids out of the school. This is, it's ter- what's happening in the classroom is terrible. And I explained to him what I'd witnessed And he looked at me, he was the principal of the school, and he said, Andy, if I was in your shoes, I too would remove my children from this school. In fact, he said, I would never send my kids to this school. And we became the first homeschooling family in our church. And we were mocked, and we were ridiculed, 
and we were challenged and we were told that our kids would grow up abnormal and that our kids would have social problems and there would be all kinds of issues later on and I would rue the day I took them out of school and trained them myself and when they turned 15, 16, 17, 18, it was going to be diabolical and life was going to be horrible and all of this stuff. And you know who said that? People in the church. Why? Schooling in America is only a new thing. The idea of a state school is, is a new concept. It's not, it's not how it used to be. And so I, I thought, well, I'm just going to be faithful. And I'm going to trust God. And I know my kids, at the end of the day, their salvation's in his hands. It's not in mine. But I'm going to be faithful, and we'll see what God does. And in a way, as I've been faithful in that process, and perhaps the, the greatest dissenter against me was my own mom. She couldn't understand it and make any sense to her. In some ways, it rebuked her because part of my conversion experience was telling her how horrible my school, high school years were. I had two witches for teachers. I had a homosexual for an English teacher. I had, I had evolutionary, committed evolutionarists <laughs> as my biology teacher. They failed me in every class. I wasn't a Christian at that point, but I knew what was true from the scriptures because I was taught them, and I fought my way through high school against the forces of darkness. It was horrible. And I, I didn't want my kids to face that at that age. I wanted my kids to be strong in the Lord and to face those things with some knowledge and some understanding and the reality of Christ in them. And I'm not saying homeschooling's for every family. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that. Some parents just can't do that. What I'm saying is Christian upbringing is imperative whether you send your kids to a, a secular school, a Christian school, a private school, or you homeschool them, at the end of the day, you need to bring your children up in the knowledge of Christ to see the world through the eyes of Christ. Worldliness, ease, religious apostasy, polygamy, demonization, moral corruption, violence, rejection of the truth, unrighteousness, wickedness, and godlessness are, were all part of Noah's culture and they're all part of our culture. And if you haven't seen that, you've got your head in the sand. And the greatest issue was not the destructiveness of these people's sin. The greatest issue was they wouldn't listen they wouldn't listen to God. God was patient towards them and loving, even in Noah's generation. And 2 Peter 2, 5 says that Noah was a righteous, a faithful preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed the righteousness of God. He pointed his generation to the need of God's forgiveness. And God in His grace sent this man to warn them of the peril of their sinful lives and to call them to repentance before it was too late. And they didn't listen. They didn't listen. The difference between Noah and everyone else was not the amount of light they had, not the amount of truth they had heard, but it was their response to it. That's what made the difference. And it was Noah's faithfulness to not only preach the truth that every man, woman, boy, and girl needs to be saved from the consequences of their sin, but to demonstrate it by a life and work in this world that honored and glorified God. And when he did that, he condemned the world in the sense that his righteous life of faith exposed their unrighteous lives of unbelief. And thus, he put burning coals on their heads. It was the rejection of the man and the message by all who lived in that day and that time that would become the very basis on which God himself would condemn them, the unbeliever, and commend Moses, Noah, the believer. Moses, Noah took away all their excuses. 
And Paul tells Timothy the same. He says to Timothy, Timothy, you're to preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They'll turn away their ears from the truth. They'll turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, you may have picked it up by now, but I don't believe we're living in the millennial reign of Christ right now. I believe we're living in these times. And I believe that to stand for the Lord takes some courage and some faith in the promises of God. And it was no different for Timothy. And the problem in our day is not so much that the gospel's not heard, but that the hearts of the people who hear it are dull and hard of hearing. And people today don't want to hear that they are storing up wrath for themselves in that day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. They don't want to hear that. You can go to churches now where the Bible isn't even opened. And if it is opened, it's some obscure translation. And and you will never hear the word sin. You will never hear the word judgment. You will never hear of the holiness and transcendence of a righteous God who cannot bear to look on sin. But what you hear is a therapeutic Jesus who's given to the church as some kind of addition to their life to make their life better. It's all man-centered, self-centered, It's nothing to do with the gospel. When people talk about having a good esteem in this world, a self-esteem, I think I can't help but think to myself, why are they so blind that they can't see the Bible says we're to deny self, we're to crucify the flesh. And, And evangelists and preachers and teachers of the word like Timothy don't stand as the judges of the earth They stand as beacons of hope, pointing people to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so again, this morning, I would say, if you're not saved, run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. He's willing and able, and He can save you from the darkest sin in your life. The the deepest, darkest secret you've got is not too difficult for God. But if you don't run to Him, Ephesians 5, 3, 12, Paul explains, because of man's sinful deeds, the wrath of God's coming upon the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to tell us as believers to walk as children of the light, not participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead exposing them. And like in Noah's day, people today reject those kinds of people. I get that. You just need to prepare yourself for that. You preach the gospel, to some it's the smell of life, to some it's the smell of death. And yet we see here that by faith, Noah obeyed the Lord. Noah delivered his wife and his family through the ark of salvation. And Noah, by his very life and belief and faith, condemned the world. But there's one more lesson. By faith, Noah, fourthly, became an heir to the righteousness of Christ. I love this verse. He became an heir of the righteousness that is is according to faith. Noah's faith did what Abraham's faith did, brought him into a right standing with God. This righteousness was a righteousness that God from eternity past had prepared for sinful mankind who would come in faith to him. And, and when we receive the righteousness of Christ and it's imputed to us and, we, and God takes our sin and puts that on Christ and judges Christ for that and gives us the righteousness and the perfections of Christ, and then he sees us as he sees his son. He sees us holy and righteous because our faith is in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it satisfies God. The gift of the righteousness of Christ is enough to satisfy God's wrath and to provide for us the riches of a right relationship with Him. And so as a believer, you possess eternal life. 
as one who's trusted in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You are secured in the kingdom of God for all eternity and sealed by the Spirit of God. You're a son and a daughter of God's family, an heir of all that Christ possesses, which is everything in this universe. You share even in the authority of Christ, the eternal glory of Christ, and the infinite purposes of Christ. You too can become an heir of the righteousness according to faith. So, man, what do we do with a text like this? Well, do you just put it on the shelf or do we wrestle with it? No, we wrestle with it. I want a faith like Noah's. And ask yourself this morning as you evaluate your own life, are you persevering in the work of faith that God has given you to do or are you just kind of stumbling along? Are you persevering? Uh, are you tenacious? Uh, are you the kind of person that says, you know what, I, I, my walk last year, I see some growth and praise God for that growth, but I want more. I want to grow more. Or are you just content and satisfied? Listen, God's in the business of changing us. He's still working on Andy Woodfield. And I'm so thankful for that. I see his grace in my life growing and I love that, but I want more. And I know it doesn't come easy. And I've got to be willing to say, Lord, here, here I am. Do what you have to do to produce in me the likeness of the, in the image of your son. Man, is your life a testimony of God, a sinful world? Is your life a testimony to your children? Do you know that you are safe, justified, declared as 